0: Thank you for giving me the opportunity to bring the word this morning. Uh, Before I start, um, I would like to read read our sermon text, which is actually going to be from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, Rick introduced me. Uh, my name is William. I was a member here for... Uh, since we moved here (laughs) in april 2018 um and i am under the care of the james river presbytery right now um ultimately seeking ordination but the script kind of got flipped from the last time you might have heard and uh, so my wife and i and our children are going to go to japan lord willing uh, to be missionaries um hopefully in the spring of next year Uh, god has been really gracious in this season um, with support raising and uh, going through that whole process. And uh, All Saints has been really generous and gracious, and, and we're really uh, very grateful for that. Um, so let's, let's, go, let's get into our word um, here. So many people are aware of the verse from Habakkuk that we read uh, for the sermon text this morning, that the righteous shall live by faith. Primarily, we know the verse as it's used by Paul. We've heard it many times, uh, I'm sure, in our Bible readings plans, <laughs> um, and it comes from Romans 1 and from Galatians 3. So, in Romans 1, it's kind of a, um, almost like a title heading for his entire argument for chapters 1 through 11, uh, and I'm going to read that so that we have our bearings here, um, and it says, in verse 16 and 17 of Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The following verse is Romans one eighteen. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all all unrighteousness in men. So there's a context to all of this good news. And of course, uh, we might have heard you you can't know the good news until you know the bad news. And so in Galatians, uh, he brings up a little bit of the bad news in chapter three, verses 10 through 12. for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So many of us have been to a Christian bookstore every once in a while, and you'll see those like wooden things sometimes you can like put on a wall, uh, little verses that are kind of inspirational, and they're just kind of treated like little quotes you can take. And sometimes it's a rather comical in a sad way um, that the context gets kind of missed completely uh, on some of these verses. And they can be inspirational sounding, but in context they, are, uh, they seem to be lacking. And, some, and I think that sometimes when we read quotes in the New Testament of the Old Testament, we'll, we'll come to places and we'll say, what are you talking about, Paul? Like we just read that verse in Habakkuk, right? And, and he's saying the righteous shall live by faith. And then he's talking about wine as a traitor An arrogant man, his soul is puffed up and it's not upright within him. What is he talking about? Why does Paul think he can just strip this verse out of Habakkuk and place it in front of us as a theme statement for his whole book, basically, uh, his whole letter to the Roman church? I don't think that's what Paul's doing. I don't think Paul's doing anything irresponsible with the text. In fact, I think that whenever we come across a New Testament text and we're perplexed by what they're doing with the Old Testament, we should probably check ourselves first and think, maybe they understood it better than we do. Maybe they understood. Maybe Paul, who probably had half the Old Testament memorized, had a better clue about what Habakkuk was up to than we do. And and even if Paul didn't, even if we're not sure that he did, the fact is the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to use that verse. And I think that uh, there is good reason for doing so. In fact, I think Habakkuk would have understood what Paul was doing very clearly and approved of it himself. Paul proceeds to flesh out what this means in Romans, but he also takes it and he kind of flips it on its head. Uh, with the New Testament logic, oftentimes you'll read something in the old testament and you'll see how it's fulfilled but it's fulfilled in a way that isn't completely unexpected you know if you're if you're just drenched in the old testament uh it fits when the new when when jesus comes and fulfills a prophecy but it it fits in a way that you you might not have seen coming if you were you know an old testament believer um and so i i hope that through our brief time in this word that we can see ultimately what justifying faith looks like in the midst of divine judgment in light of Christ. So, uh, to do that, I'm actually going to speak on the whole book of Habakkuk. Um, So, I I apologize. I'll I'll have to not say a whole lot as I go through this. Um, So, I'm going to tell you what the structure of Habakkuk is. So, it starts off, and it's Habakkuk saying, I'm, I'm also, for the record, terrible at consistency in pronouncing things. So, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I'm not sure where the emphasis goes. I don't trust the scholars either. Regardless, uh, I'm going to continue. Um, and he basically structures the book with, pretty simply, right? He starts off with a complaint about injustice in Judah. And then God answers his complaint. And the answer to the complaint is, of course, okay, I'm going to judge Judah because they're unrighteous. I'm going to send in Babylon and they're going to destroy Judah. Habakkuk all of a sudden wants to take back his complaint and he starts over, wait, 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 but Babylon is worse than us. That's true. And God says, don't worry, I've got this. I'm also going to judge Babylon. And Habakkuk trembles and then he writes a psalm for us and he praises God as the one who will bring justice, the Lord of history. And he rejoices in the Lord of the song of praise. So I'm going to start off here. That is that is the structure of the book. It's only three chapters. It's pretty short. I recommend it in general for for your own Bible reading. Definitely read through it in one sitting because uh, it is one argument that's being made. All right. So we're going to start off with Habakkuk's complaint about Judah briefly. And I think this is really helpful if you have Romans 1 through 3 in the back of your head while you're reading it. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole complaint as we go here. So, this is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Can you hear the echoes of Paul in this? The law is paralyzed. It is powerless to create justice, to create righteousness. It was that way from the very first time the law was given to Israel at Sinai. Moses comes down the mountain with the written version of the law, and by then they had already descended into sensuality and idolatry. It was that way when God Destroyed the old order, the old Mosaic order that was there in the wilderness and they went into Israel and they set up the tabernacle, tab, tabernacle at Shiloh. He destroyed that order and he raised up the Davidic monarchy. And you might think, well, now they've, they're going to get it together. And of course, Habakkuk is there at the end of the Davidic monarchy showing that indeed they didn't. The law was paralyzed and justice didn't go forth. But in fact, it's, it turns out that this problem isn't just for both of those times. It also applies even if you're living in the time of Jesus and Paul, when they've already been exiled and they've already been brought back and the people of God are living together in the land and a whole bunch of holiness code-keeping wannabe priests called Pharisees are the ones enforcing the rules and all of a sudden, turns out, that doesn't help either. The law is paralyzed In fact, it comes down to the fact that the law is paralyzed relative to our own hearts and minds. The law is paralyzed and justice doesn't go forth from us. That's the problem. Paul pulls no punches about the problem facing the people of God in his own day and right down to the present. The law is paralyzed when the wicked surround the righteous, whether it's a bunch of people in government or mobs in the streets or your own heart and flesh betraying you. We know the law and we might love it, But it is paralyzed because of the sinfulness of our own hearts. Societies have laws, that's true, but societies are made up of individuals. There's no society that exists in some, you know, Platonic world out there that's just perfect and we can all look at it. The fact of the matter is, sinful men make up all of the institutions in our life and so the law is paralyzed because of our own sinfulness. In God's good providence, as Paul demonstrates in Galatians and Romans, we know what the law was given for. There's a few things that it's given for. One of the main ones is to show that God's judgment of the wicked is indeed just. It has always been this way since the fall. God responds to Habakkuk's complaint. And I'm actually going to read his whole, the whole response to the first complaint. He says this, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, who march throughout the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. A key to remember Old Testament prophecy by is that divine judgment in Old Testament prophecy often shows up in the destructive power of Gentile empires over God's people through military conquest. That's the most common historical manifestation of the wrath of God. I'm going to repeat that because it's got a lot of uh, sub, you know, uh, sub, contingent phrases in it. The historical manifestation of the wrath of God against those who break his law is the destructive power of Gentile empires. That's not the only manifestation, but it's a very common one in the prophets when we're reading it. When Nebuchadnezzar swallowed up the whole world of the Middle East in his reign, God was judging the Jews and the Gentiles without partiality, to quote Romans. His wrath was revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. Gentile nations, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah were all told to repent by the prophets. We have the record of their letters sent to those kings. And they were all ultimately captured, first by the Assyrians, then they started to build themselves up a little bit, and then the Babylonians came in, finished the job. Habakkuk uses the image of Babylon later on in here as a fisher of men who casts a net of violence to capture all of the people of the surrounding nations. He's like a fisherman who goes and gets a whole bunch of fish and then just dumps them out and then casts his net again. He's just going to use violence. He's just going to go and take them all over. Habakkuk, to say the least, is distressed to hear about this. All of a sudden, his complaints about his brothers and sisters, according to the flesh, the people of Judah, fall to the background. All of a sudden, it's almost like he wants to take it back. Hold on. That's not what I meant. Maybe they're not so bad. Hold on. And he starts to talk about the wickedness of Babylon. Now, according to Habakkuk, there is a problem with God's justice in view. How can God judge his own people, sinners though they are? I mean, they're bad. The laws paralyze. paralyzed. The wicked surround the righteous. We know that. Their condemnation is just. But the people he's using are more wicked than them. You can hear Habakkuk's distress in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He continues in verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? The question of God's own righteousness and justice takes the foreground here in Habakkuk, just like it does in Romans. The situations are distinct because the questions are different, but they are very parallel situations. How can God keep his promises to his people, which include promises of salvation, promises of mercy, how can he do that while executing justice on the wicked? When will the wrath ever stop? Will God, using Babylon, mercilessly kill the nations forever? It's just then that we come to our text for this morning. Habakkuk waits on the watchtower, looking out for the answer that God will provide. He is perplexed. He is confused. He does not know what to make of this. He waits in faith He prays for mercy, he prays for justice, he prays for God to reveal his righteousness, but knows that can only mean death and judgment for a sinful people. Habakkuk's complaints are clear, and they are true, and he knows it. The people of God do not, sorry, people of God do not deserve mercy from the righteous judge of the earth, so calling on God to execute justice might not be the right call. That's how he started off, right? That didn't end up well for him. The answer was, okay, I'm going to come in and execute justice. So he calls for justice again, and God says, don't worry, I'm going to do it. <laughs> but the point is here that neither the ones enacting that justice in history and neither any of the neighbors, not the ones enacting the justice in history, or the the neighbors of Judah, or Judah themselves, deserves justice. Mercy. Habakkuk can see that there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one when he looks at his own self and his own heart, not when he looks at his brothers and sisters according to the flesh, not when he looks at the foreign army coming to destroy them, and not when he looks at the innocent, relatively speaking, lives that they will destroy, not when he looks at the nations surrounding Israel, and not when he looks at Israel itself. In short, all are under sin, both the victims and the oppressors. Habakkuk does know where to look, though. The same place as the psalmist who raised his eyes to the hills from whence his help comes, Habakkuk gets himself to the tower, like a soldier on watch duty, and he looks for the Lord's answer. Now, normally, a watchtower is where you look for that invading army to come. You post soldiers to look out for signs that an army is approaching so that you can take the necessary defensive precautions. You close the gates. You post the soldiers on the walls, right? But Habakkuk doesn't go to the watchtower to look for flesh and blood. His primary enemy is not the Chaldeans, and he knows it. He looks out for God's answer to his complaint. How is God going to answer his plea for justice and mercy? How is it going to work? How is God going to pull it off? As an aside, I want to point out that Habakkuk takes his complaints to the Lord. This book is not showing us somebody grumbling with other believers or especially with unbelievers. It is not Habakkuk talking to himself about all the ways he is a victim. He seeks the righteous judge to give judgment. He is like Job who cries out for justice in a world that seems full of pain and destruction and injustice. In fact, if you read the book of Job, it's it's a perfectly apt comparison. This lament from Habakkuk is not generalized. It's not in some blog post online. It is a prayer instead for mercy to the Lord. When we feel disoriented or at a loss, when fear or grief seem like they're coming and there is no escape, be like Habakkuk and look to the Lord in faith. I say this for myself as much as for you because he will answer. We are called to stand on the watchtower and look for that answer. We're not called to enact it. We're called to look for it. Sometimes God's actions in our lives, the thorns in our flesh, uh, in our hearts, in our communities, or on the grand scale of the nations, they can perplex us. And we can ask God to remove, remove the temptations, remove the thorns, remove the pain, remove the judgment, the discipline from the Lord. But in fact, we are commanded to bring those fears and anxieties to the Lord. And Habakkuk's complaint is an example for us. On how to do that faithfully, and also an example of the patience to wait for God's answer to our prayers. So, when you come back to our text here, Habakkuk receives a startling vision following that God is still at work, and its result is coming soon. Write it down, get ready for it. That work is this Babylon is gathering the nations together, but his pride and his idolatry are like strong wine, and he will fall. God has consigned the nations, including both Jews and Gentiles, to judgment by their Babylonian overlords. His answer to Habakkuk's, Habakkuk is a statement that he will bring the overlords to judgment as well. That's how he's going to save his people. We see that in chapter 3. He's going to save his people and his anointed by judging the judges. He follows up uh, the statement that we read for our sermon text with a series of woes that are pronounced over Babylon, a description of all of their sins. God knows their wickedness, and he will bring them to judgment. In short, good news. The instrument of God's wrath, the historical manifestation of God's wrath, will itself be subject to God's wrath. Does that sound like good news? Paul didn't call it, in 2 Corinthians, the ministry of condemnation because he thought it would be just a fun thing to say. This is what it means. This is the law of sin and death. There's the sinners in Judah, the sinners in Babylon, the sinners in Israel, the sinners in Moab, all under condemnation. So where's the good news? I'm getting there. Divine judgment is not always when God throws fire from heaven. Often it's God directing the messiness of history in subtle ways. The most sinful of nations and individuals do have their way for a time. Sometimes it's natural disasters and earthquakes and fires like was prophesied in Amos. Sometimes the breakdown of the social order acts as a sort of judgment, like in Isaiah 24, the little apocalypse it's called. Sometimes it's when God lets us get away with secret sins for a time and lets us dig deeper into the holes of our own making, piling up sins upon sins and guilt upon guilt. God, as part of judgment, sometimes there's nothing flashy that happens at all, and he just lets us do what we want. And I think that's the most frightening manifestation of God's wrath. We might think that judgment and the woes of Habakkuk do not apply to the world nowadays. We might think this, but I think it's wrong-headed in many ways. The same God is the sovereign Lord of all the earth. Through viruses and civil unrest, police brutality and border skirmishes, famines and locust infestations across whole countries, the living God that's revealed in the Bible sits enthroned He directs all of these things. They have always happened since the fall, and the same God is in charge. Our job is not to figure out what he's up to in all of these complexities that surround us and all these difficulties and trials and troubles. Our job is to remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he was asked about the Tower of Siloam that fell and crushed some people as a result of the Roman oppression of his time. If you do not repent, you will all likewise perish. There's no easy out there. The final verdict is in for the judges and for the judged, for the Gentiles and the Jews, the oppressors and their victims, guilty as sin, dead in trespasses, children of disobedience, and deserving of wrath. Habakkuk is given a vision from God that shows that he is bringing everybody into judgment. He pronounces woes on Babylon, condemning their violence and idolatry, and the words are true. We know that Babylon must fall. We've read our Bibles. In the Old and New Testament alike, this theme runs through it. Habakkuk knows that God is the righteous judge who will judge Babylon in the future. Nevertheless, it's not the sort of consolation he was hoping for. That's not, that's not the kind of salvation that feels good. So he writes, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sounds. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Can you hear your own heart in that? Well, God is just. I guess he's going to get the bad guys too. You know, compared to me, I guess those are the bad guys. People that are causing me harm. Well, Everybody's a sinner, so I guess he's going to judge them too. It's a ministry of condemnation. And Habakkuk shines a bright light on that ministry. Where is the good news in sin and death and wrath and judgment? Even so, in all the midst of this talk of judgment, Habakkuk does give us a glimmer of hope. And in Hebrew poetry, and and remember when you're reading the prophets, oftentimes God is delivering his revelation in terms of poetry. The center is where the theme, the underlying meaning, the most important thing, the punchy bit, is. And of course, in the center of Habakkuk, we have that the righteous will live by faith. And I think that's actually the theme of the whole book. It's not the one who trusts in the law. It's the one who trusts in the Lord. The law is paralyzed because of our sinfulness. Israel had the law, and they did not keep the law. What hope is there? It's not the idolaters of Babylon. You don't go to some other god, the god of violence and warfare. Ultimately, Babylon will be consumed by its own violence. They always eat their own. Sin destroys itself. It carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. So, there is only one way to throw yourself in faith on the covenant-keeping Lord, the one The one that will live will be the one who trusts in the Lord of history through cataclysmic judgment. Now, of course, there is an initial fulfillment of Habakkuk's prophecy, and it really doesn't take long. Babylon does destroy the temple. The Israelites are taken away into exile. Daniel and his uh, three mighty men are there with him already. And Daniel is an old man at this point, but it's still in the scheme of history, not that long before Cyrus the Great invades Babylon within one generation of the destruction of the temple. One and a half generations, if you're using biblical terms anyway. And yet, even though Cyrus is definitely a step up on Nebuchadnezzar in general, like Isaiah uses some pretty nice words to talk about Cyrus. We also know from Daniel that Cyrus is just the next beast in line there's a lot of beasts. And in Daniel, there's the four beasts. And we know that it starts with Babylon. And then it goes to Persia. And then it goes to the Greeks. And then it goes to the Romans, finally. So when Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the king of the Jews, the fitting representative of the people of God, of the lawbreakers, is stripped naked and crucified on a Roman cross. The climactic word of judgment and wrath from God in history was spoken. In Christ, God has condemned sin itself in the flesh. In Him, the wrath of God, which was represented by Babylonian oppression in history, that same wrath that was found in Habakkuk to be swallowing up nations like death itself, like a fisherman that casts his net, catches a fish that it can't hold. The net breaks. The ship sinks. The wrath of God that was represented by the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman imperial beast catches the fish that breaks the net of violence that had been its idol for generations. Babylon's military power might be like death, swallowing up all the nations around, but Jesus' death swallows up death itself. Babylon is drunk on the wine of the blood of the saints, but Jesus' blood is the most potent vintage, and Babylon teeters and falls. God's just wrath finds an object that can pay that infinite penalty that's due to sin. Right now, we are living in a country and in a world that is incredibly uncomfortable in its own skin. God seems to be using troubles that are being played out on a global scale to pull back the veil of our pride and remind us of a fundamental truth. But we are fallen creatures living in a fallen world. He's reminding us of our limitations. Our technocratic solutions that we've relied on for social stability and economic growth have a built-in limit to them. We tout the praises of modern medicine and modern systems of justice, and rightly so. It is a wonderful blessing to live in our time and place in many ways, and I'm enormously grateful. Nevertheless, with the simple introduction of a new coronavirus, followed by civil unrest sweeping the nation, and a seemingly endless supply of solutions being offered on many sides of the ideological divide, I want to encourage everyone who can hear me to remember that the message of the book of Habakkuk and the book of Romans and the book of the Bible is very clear. The law is powerless to create justice because of sin. Nobody is going to be justified by works of the law. We know what that means for us spiritually as individuals. I'm going to submit that we can't legislate our way to utopia. The justified ones in this age, the righteous, live by faith. Faith in a city not built with hands, whose builder and maker is God himself. A faith in the God who sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The gospel message this morning is that he has made us, not the imperial might of Nebuchadnezzar, the fishers of men to bring the message of the cross to all kinds of people, confident that God will handle the twists and turns of history. The original fishers of men did so by violent conquest, bringing all the nations under their sway, taking down strongholds, laughing at fortresses. The original fishers of men did so by violent conquest because that was to show that God's wrath abides on all men, but the gospel message which makes us fishers of men is a different net. We gather all kinds of men from all the nations of the world, but it's under grace, not wrath. It's to show God's mercy displayed in the cross of Christ. We tear down the fortresses, but there are the lofty thoughts that stand against Christ and his word. We are called to look out from our watchtowers, not in fear of approaching armies, not looking out for enemies of flesh and blood, We are looking out for Christ, for the bridegroom, for the author and finisher of our faith, the yes and amen of all of God's promises. He is the answer to Habakkuk's complaint. We are to shine as lights in the midst of darkness, as the justified ones in the midst of judgment, to stand on the watchtower and look for the Lord to answer our pleas for help, trusting the goodness of God, even in the midst of trouble. From the first time we hear the gospel until our deathbed, we are called to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us first. As it says in Romans, it's from faith for faith. From first to last, as it says in the NIV. All of that judgment that God brought on the nation of Israel and its Gentile neighbors 2,600 years ago in the Middle East, passing through imperial oppressors until landing in the lap of the feckless Pontius Pilate was brought down ultimately onto the Lord Jesus Christ himself who bore our sins on that Roman cross. Habakkuk is a book about trusting in the Lord of creation and providence amid tragedy, confusion, anxiety, and terror. It is ultimately about gospel faith in times of divine judgment. Habakkuk ends his prophecy where I will end my sermon this morning with a song of joy in the Lord, an expression of the faith that overcomes the world. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread on my high places. Church, we are a holy nation, a distinct people. We appeal to a God who sits in universal judgment with a righteous standard of perfection that covers all things and all people yet we also know that our Redeemer lives. We know that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Our faith overcomes the world because the object of our faith, the Son of God, has already overcome the world. We will not be saved by the law, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, not by first helping ourselves, but rather by clinging in faith to the Christ who was swallowed by that beast. He was swallowed, dead, and buried. But coming out of that tomb three days later, he showed that all the destructive power of Babylon and the wrath of Almighty God himself towards sin was dealt with, was finished, was eaten, was taken away. Babylon the great is fallen. We are more than conquerors in him. We may be living in a time when we tremble at God's just judgments in history. We may